0: Hi, I'm Frank Ferris, one of the principals of the Palliative Care Interdisciplinary Curriculum. I want to personally thank you for joining us for this module in our series on symptom management.
1: Good morning, everyone. My name is Brian Carlisle. I'm the uh, Palliative Medical Director at Grant, and I'm going to be doing a lecture today. Before we get into the topic, I wanted to just start with a trivia question. Uh, what feature of dementia is most likely to result in nursing home placement? A. Incontinence, B. Nighttime wandering, C. Needing assistance with bathing, or D. Depression. Here, I'll put you on the hot seat. What do you, what do you think and why? I'm
2: going to go with incontinence
1: uh, because it requires uh, people for, for care. Okay, so we have a vote for A. Incontinence.
2: I agree with incontinence. Incontinence? It, it increases the caregiver burden
1: at that point. Okay. Anyone else? Any other? I was thinking nighttime
2: wandering. Why? Because I would think that's the most difficult thing to manage
1: at home. Okay. Anyone else? Depression. Depression? Why?
2: Well, they would be thinking dementia is worsening and it's just depression or dementia,
1: they're not able to differentiate Okay, so like a bigger burden for the caregiver not able to differentiate it. So the answer is actually uh, B, nighttime wander. So the reason for that, and it's sort of counterintuitive, but once you know the answer, it makes sense. So family members don't mind usually doing incontinence, one-on-one feeding, assisting with bathing. Um, depression is a big burden for caregivers, but if a caregiver is getting woken up at night by wandering, rummaging around the house, and they're just getting their sleep disrupted night after night after night, and they're not sleeping, that's when they sort of we- reach their wits' end and start looking into nursing homes. So that's leading lead to neuropsychiatric symptoms and dementia. So objectives for today, evaluation of agitation in the setting of dementia, We're going to talk about pharmacologic and non pharmacologic approaches uh, in in treating agitation and the nuances of treating uh, different dementia subtypes who may have agitation. So, agitation is extremely common. 62 to 90% of patients with dementia will get agitated, and as the disease progresses in severity, the risk and severity of agitation also increase. So, sundowning uh, symptoms. Of agitation tend to worsen as the sun sets, as the shadows grow long. We really don't know why this happens, but we suspect it's due to disruption in circadian rhythm uh, caused by the dementia. So this was, I actually was driving in the Keys. I just moved back from Florida six weeks ago. we were driving in the Keys and I pulled off the road to take this picture as a geriatrician and palliative care doc, probably not my first choice of a restaurant name, especially in Florida, Sundowners. Um, so I, uh, I had to pull off and get this, this shot, and then I ended up doing this lecture. So it worked out. So behaviors, So agitation is a general term. I think it's important to drill down to really get to the root of what is is the agitation? What is the behavior? Is it someone who's being aggressive, either verbally or physically, punching caregiver? Shouting, yelling—is it a delusion? Is it a fixed belief that, even despite explaining, um, it's a false fixed belief. So, a belief that's not true, and despite explaining it away and and showing rationale uh, to the opposite, the person still holds on to that belief. Hallucinations, wandering—wandering wandering is often secondary to delusions. So, there's a delusion that the person, especially even guys, they got to go to work, they got to go do something that they're not in their own home um, and so that causes them to to leave the house and they end up wandering. Wandering is very dangerous uh, for uh, folks with dementia. Agitation, so depression, is it someone who's disinhibited, someone who is having sleep disturbances like insomnia, or rummaging kind of uh, OCD type characteristics uh, can also kind of present as agitation someone who has to rummage through the drawers in the kitchen looking for something that they can't explain um, uh, compulsive behaviors So why do we care about agitation? We know it 's a part of the disease. agitation can be very distressing and straining for patients and for caregivers. Some behaviors can be dangerous like wandering uh, the some of the articles I've read, folks can wander and fall into a ravine. They can get hit by a car's. They can die of exposure. Really, uh, truly, a, a dangerous behavior. Uh, agitation can increase the rate of functional decline. When you compare patients with dementia who are agitated versus patients um, with dementia who are not agitated, patients with agitation tend to decline quicker from a functional status standpoint. So my approach is really to. Try and determine an underlying cause, if there is one. If there's no underlying cause found and you really think it's just dementia related to the agitation, ask yourself, what type of dementia are we dealing with? And then make shared decision-making with the family to decide treatment options because, there's, as you'll see, there's really not a whole slew of evidence um, in treating dementia. It's more of the art, art of medicine than really the science at this point. So underlying cause, often, especially in more severely demented patients who can't communicate their needs, agitation can be a sign of an unmet need or of uh, a discomfort. Who has the mic? So what would be an unmet, <laughs> an, a potential unmet need or discomfort that, a, say, someone in a nursing home with se- severe dementia might, might experience?
2: Discomfort, uh, maybe like a bed
1: sore. Right. Show, so. so pain. Good. Maybe we could pass it this way. Constipation. It's constipation, right? So think think basic needs. What, so what, what makes you agitated? Hungry. Like, so hungry, yes. So four in the afternoon, hungry.
2: Itching, need a bath.
1: So hygiene, right? If if you are incontinent and have a, a dirty diaper and no one's changing it, that'll make you a little agitated.
0: Intimacy or connectedness.
1: So loneliness, exactly. So that that's a good. So hunger, I put hangry in there. That's a term my life my wife likes to use for me when I haven't had a snack and it's about three thirty and I start getting irritable. <laughs> Thirst, hygiene, frustration, loneliness, fear um, those are all all unmet needs that can cause someone to be agitated, and then medical symptoms we talked about some of them what so what um, let's list some more I guess so we, we said itching, pain, constipation what's another big one say say it's a 85 year old man you're
2: it, you're
1: Urinary retention. I've seen cases where someone is so agitated and we're trying and trying and trying to control it and we put a Foley in and we get a liter and a half of urine out and their agitation gets gets better. Oh, infection, yeah, urinary tract infection, pneumonia, often agitation can be the presenting symptom for someone with dementia who has an infection or a, is having a heart attack or is having a stroke. So the medical workup of delirium or agitation is probably out of the scope of this lecture. It's important to look for those things, um, because if you miss the underlying cause, you can, you can treat it all you want, and it's probably not going to get better. So the most bang for our buck in treating agitation is non-pharmacologic approaches. So exercise therapy has great evidence. You give someone some activity during the day, you wear them out so they're tired at night, and lo and behold, in the afternoon, they don't have the extra energy to really be agitated. They're more fulfilled. They're just, they feel healthier. They don't. The agitation rates go way down with exercise therapy. I think the same thing with a normal sleep-wake cycle. Uh, s- someone who sleeps for six hours a day, and then the nurses tell you is up all night, well, you're, you can't really expect them to sleep through the night if they slept on and off all day. So regular time to get up in the morning, Regular bedtime, meals at the same time every day. A structured day can really reduce uh, agitation. Massage therapy makes you feel good. Great evidence for that to help. Um, kind of the, the loneliness factor can help with pain. Playing music just in itself, especially music from the era in which they were, the patient was young or music that you know they enjoy, is very, very helpful. And pet therapy, both live pets, they actually make... There's a, I saw a seal, a robot seal, that squeaks and moves around, and the, especially in later stages of dementia, the person can pet it, and that really calms them. Uh, I've seen robot cats that they make now, too, um, or just having animals in the nursing home. This is where the most gains can be made, but this is also the most difficult to coordinate, the most expensive, the most, I think, uh, difficult to get people to rally around in a nursing home, or you know even someone in the, in the home to transport them to get a massage is can be difficult or, or a burden so so often I see the way we approach dementia patients um, contributing to agitation, so someone who has late stages of dementia who will never know the date they 'll never know. All the names of their family members anymore. They've lost that ability to ability to remember, remember those things. And I think our uh, usual approach of "Hi, Mr. So and So, do you remember me? I'm Dr. Carlisle. What's the date today?" and you know we go through the mini mental and we ask them all these questions that they just don't know. That not knowing thing. Are there any students in here? Well, I think even just remembering being a student, when you're sitting on rounds and you're getting asked questions after questions that you know you're probably supposed to know and you don't know them, that can really cause someone to feel feel badly and it can, and someone who can't verbalize their feelings can result in uh, outward agitation. So my tips for communication, someone's hard of hearing, it's best to get get down to their level so you can make eye contact. Don't yell. It's harder difficult that's the usual nat- natural tendency is to, is to yell um, yelling if they can lips, makes you look like you're angry and they can pick up on that um, the patient is always right so if the patient thinks it's Saturday morning just roll with it uh, you don't have to agree but you don't if you confront that it just I think creates conflict and you're never going to convince them that your way of thinking is is correct I think with delusions, I, I take the same approach. You don't have to agree to feed into it. If someone says, there was a cat in my room this morning, and you know there's no way that's possible, you say, wow, well, that's kind of weird. And I think distracting is the next step. So you say, well, oh, that's kind of weird. Can you come help me fold these towels? Can you come help, um, come help me in the kitchen? And five minutes later, some, sometimes that worry about the cat is gone. If you say, there's absolutely no way there was a cat in here, you're crazy. I was here all day. There's no cat. The person's response is going to be, yes, there was. I saw one. And there can, it can really create conflict, which can make agitation worse. I could I could try to convince you that you arrived here today via a helicopter. And I could show you videos of you landing on the roof, and I could bring the pilot in to say that you landed on the roof of the helicopter, you would say, no, I didn't. I, I drove here today. I remember driving here. And we couldn't convince you, right? And it's the same thing. And it would just cause us to to argue. I like this phrase, I need your help. Especially with family members, they usually like each other. Usually a patient will say, oh, they need my help. I like them. I'll go go along with it. So I, boy, that's. I'm sorry that you, you know, I'm sorry that you don't think you ride via helicopter today. Why don't you come help me, you know, with some towels? So the uh, pain AD scale, I think you're supposed to have some handouts. Handout. Can I borrow one? Ah, great. This is a really important tool. So often agitation is related to pain, and we miss it patient can't communicate that they're in pain they look restless and wheeze ascribe that to agitation more than pain so the pain ad scale is a wonderful tool in patients who can't communicate a pain history as an objective way to look at the patient so breathing focalizations facial expression body language and consolability and they are rated on uh, each of those is rated on a scale of 0 1 or 2 and so the total score is 0 to 10 on the second page of that, there's a really detailed description of um, the different point levels. If someone does have scores that are high, I think it's important to consider pain and consider treating it. They've done studies in the nursing home where they've started people just on Tylenol, and they found that agitation has actually been reduced just by that, that simple measure um, in treating people's arthritis pain. So always consider pain in the differential, especially in hospice patients. We end up treating both. You treat agitation and pain simultaneously because sometimes it's hard to tell. The one uh, sometimes dyspnea. If you read some of, like the breathing, sometimes if someone's dyspneic, they can score high on this, um, and it is some clinical judgment of separating pain, pain versus anxiety versus agitation. But it's always important to ask ourselves that question: Could this be untreated pain? So as a general tenet of geriatrics, less is more. So stopping medicines that can contribute to delirium after we look for the cause, after we approach the patient in a a fashion that is uh, best for dementia patients, looking at the med list and seeing are we giving them anything that could be contributing. So anticholinergics, Benadryl, Oxybutynin, antihistamines are all culprits, especially benzos. Um, A benzodiazepine. Is similar to a shot in a beer. One of my mentors used to say it's a freeze-dried version of a shot in a beer. And if you have someone who's disinhibited, if you have someone who's already throwing punches at the nurses and or being sexually inappropriate or doing those things, and you give them a shot, would you give them a shot in a beer? No. If you have a room full of people and half are doing a shot in a beer and half aren't. A room full of today's seventy-year-olds. Which half of that room is most likely to trip and fall down? They're half doing the shot in the beer. So we need to be very careful of. It. For strict agitation, giving a, a benzodiazepine sometimes is 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 not the right move. Um, so what do they give you before you get a cold, patient's get a colonoscopy? What do they, what do we give patients? First set, benzo. So it 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 can be amnestic. So it can make their memory issues a little worse as well. So that's to say that we see, especially in hospice setting, where someone's anxious, agitated near the end. That's, I think, probably a different story. But in someone who's still out in the community, think twice before benzos. Ask yourself, would you give them a shot of beer? So really the mainstay of the pharmacologic treatment of agitation is the antipsychotics. So antipsychotics increased mortality risk. So black box warning, increased mortality risk in elderly patients with dementia. So 1% to 2% absolute increase in mortality in patients who have dementia and agitation. So the cause of death was varied, but increased risk of pneumonia, CVAs, There's no FDA approval for antipsychotic use in dementia. There's no FDA approved drug for agitation in dementia. Mortality tends to be higher with the first generation than the second generation antipsychotics. So what do we use for the agitated dementia patient? We use antipsychotics. So it can be difficult to to decide what to do. So if if so I'm gonna pick on you again, if, if you were a caregiver and your loved one was 85 and had severe dementia and you hadn't slept for three nights,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and you you bring you bring your loved one to the to the doctor, mm-hmm. and they say, well, we have a couple options. We can give you a medicine that will help, make, will probably help them sleep better at night, get you some rest, or we could enroll you in a study where there's a 50% chance your loved one's going to get a placebo.
2: I'd say no, thank
1: you. You'd say, please give me the medicine. I haven't slept for three days. I don't, you know, your study is less important. So the studies have a inherent bias. They usually attract, enroll the patients that have less severe dementia, where the caregivers aren't as burned. And so... If you have someone who has severe dementia and you give them an antipsychotic, the improvement will be markedly better than someone who just has mild agitation and you give them an antipsychotic. The studies tend to underestimate the efficacy. I'll pick on you again. Which, which patient has the higher mortality? The patient who has severe dementia or um, has dementia with severe agitation or has dementia with mild agitation, who will die first, do you think? I'm going to go with the mild agitation. Will die first? Yeah, just to change it up. So the patient with the more severe agitation will die more quickly. Agitation, so that we talked about how as the disease progresses, the um, agitation can get more severe with the disease. So sometimes agitation can be a sign of just more rapidly advancing disease. So who's more, most likely to get an antipsychotic? The patient with the more severe agitation. Who's going to die quicker? The patient with the more severe agitation. So that's, I think, where we we get part of, and not completely, but part of that absolute increase in mortality. So we have a situation where the studies are a little biased. They attract mild agitation to under underestimate the efficacy of antipsychotics. And then we have studies that also overestimate the. Uh, Mortality because they tend to, um, antipsychotics tend to be used in people with more severe dementia overall, more rapidly advancing. So, this is a very, very detailed chart with, and so notice it's adverse effects of antipsychotic medications for schizophrenia. There's no FDA approved antipsychotic for dementia this is useful to look at to see what, what do you want? Do you want a more sedating antipsychotic? Do you want one that blocks more dopamine, say in someone having visual hallucinations? You want one if it's someone who's orthostatic? Um, many of these antipsychotics we don't use. This is a good reference um, to kind of see which is more sedating, which are have more metabolic side effects. So it's, it's a good reference. So in my opinion, the two reasons to use an antipsychotic in the setting of agitation and dementia. Danger to yourself, so if the patient is a danger to themselves, trying to get out of bed, trying to wander out of the house, someone who has severe osteoporosis and tries to punch a nurse, um, or if the symptoms are distressing to the patient. So hallucinations that are distressing if someone is just so agitated they can't get good rest. So danger to themselves or others symptoms distressing to a patient. Someone is hallucinating and it's very pleasant and they're not affected and no one is distressed, then we could consider not treating that. Scheduled versus PRN. I think the setting plays into this. At home, the PRN sometimes is the way to go. The caregivers can know the patient, know when to give it. Um, But it's also more of a reactionary way to treat versus scheduled, where you maybe stay ahead of the agitation a little more. I think the risk with scheduled is it tends to be forgotten about, and the person just is on schedule antipsychotics for for months and months and months without having it reassessed. So we do need to frequently reassess for dose, frequency reduction. And really, the American Psychiatric Association recommends tapering after four months, or at least attempting to taper. The, the PRN too in a nursing home or in the hospital, often you're relying on the the judgment of the individual nurse who's caring for the patient, which can vary widely. I think mean, probably especially in the nursing home and even in the hospital too. We talked about these medicines last my last lecture. Uh, Aripiprazole and Amenda, they do have a role in treating agitation. So 2015 meta-analysis. Found a small but statistically significant improvement in neuropsychiatric symptoms with dinapizil or aricept. Big difference seen in Lewy body dementia with hallucinations and cognitive improvement. Lomendah. More study is needed. There is some some surfacing evidence about reducing irritability, reducing aggression, and other neuropsychiatric symptoms. Talked about these drugs last time is just sort of the the only tool in the toolkit we have to to treat dementia, but they also, in addition to helping cognition a little bit, they do help. They can help agitation a little bit as well. In the setting of a nursing home, these medicines are much much preferred um, over the antipsychotics. The minimum data set is a of data that is transmitted to the federal government from each nursing home and that's how the nursing homes get their star ratings online. And antipsychotic use is one of the areas that's tracked. Um, it's monitored very closely. Antipsychotic's in the nursing home. If you start, when I was in the nursing home as a medical director, when you started an antipsychotic, usually the next day you'd have the administrator swinging by your office to discuss w- why you're using it and you would have to defend it um, and the pharmacy would would kind of be um, sending you letters every couple of weeks about your antipsychotic use. so the Herceptin amenda, as a first step in the nursing home sometimes is the way to go um, to to play nicely in the sandbox with others and there's some evidence that it works So pseudobulbar affects sort of new uh, come in the spotlight recently in some of the geriatrics literature and um, journals. So it's involuntary, uncontrollable, frequent episodes of laughing or crying. And often they're, it's incongruent to the stimulus. So if someone gives you very bad news and you start cracking up hilariously for five minutes, it can be socially disabling. People are, can be very torn apart by this, uh, this diagnosis. If someone tells you a joke and you sob for five minutes after um, it, it, people, people start to wonder about you. Um, stroke, Alzheimer's, dementia, Parkinson's, ALS, MS, it's a short circuit in the way, in the brain, the emotion center, and then how we outwardly express emotions. And some circuits can get crossed. Um, and it can cause this, st- this um, expression of emotion that's not actually what the patient's feeling inside. The example of this dementia patient would be someone who just starts crying and no one can figure out why they're sad, why they're crying, they can't communicate and then five minutes later they're, they're not crying and it's like it never happened. So we see a lot of differentiating pseudobulbar affect from depression. So laughing, crying, or both, usually the episodes are seconds to minutes. The episodes are uncontrollable. Um, the patient does not have any control over it. The episodes don't match the feeling inside. People will tell you, well, the joke was funny, but it just, I, I started sobbing, or boy, the news was bad, it made me really sad, but then I started laughing. There's no link to underlying thoughts. Whereas in depression, the, in depression, usually you usually don't see the laughing. But it's an ongoing mood. The crying reflects the feelings inside of worthlessness, hopelessness. um, And you can control those thoughts with CBT or different counseling methods. Where PBA, it's really uncontrollable. And so Nudexta was newly approved. um, Low-dose quinidine, so it's um, quinidine and uh, dextromethorphan and quinidine. Low-dose quinidine inhibits the breakdown of dexamethorfan, which is an MDA uh, receptor antagonist. It's approved for pseudobulbar affect. It's used off-label often for agitation, for the same reason in the nursing home. It's not an antipsychotic. You can use it without um, ruffling the feathers of administration or of the pharmacy in the nursing home. I personally haven't seen it work wonders yet. Um, It's too pretty cheap, basic medicines that are now a very expensive branded medicine. I, I see the role, f- I, I think I see what the plan was for them putting it on the market for pseudobulbar affect, which uh, really hadn't got a lot of marketing play or even notoriety until this drug came on the market. Um, and I, I think, th- and this is my opinion, but I think their goal was to get it on the market and then to really start having it used off-label for agitation. But it, it can play a role. I think the jury's still out. So th- we talked a little bit last time about frontal temporal dementia. And this is the same slide from that last lecture. So frontal temporal dementia, your frontal lobes are getting wiped out. Which is, they're re- responsible for disin- uh, disinhibition. So your frontal lobes inhibit all of the thoughts and feelings. Um, they are your filter in many ways. They're responsible for. Many of the aspects of your personality, um, so someone who has a frontal lobotomy you can i don 't know if you've ever seen videos of someone they're usually very flat, very apathetic, um, because their personality has been surgically um, removed. So the front of the temporal dementia patients sexually or socially inappropriate, apathy, they can be compulsive, disinhibited. I told the story last time of the, the guy who had FTD who was went to dinner with his wife and was started, stood up and started wandering around the restaurant greeting each table um, like he was the maitre d, um, sending the pictures of his wife with Anna Nicole Smith's head pasted on. Um, so these are the patients that have, I think, the most severe behavioral symptoms. And I think we can learn a lot from treating the symptoms of frontal, frontal temporal dementia. Uh, we could, that a lot of that translates to treating other dementias as well. So, in frontotemporal dementia, the main state of treatment is SSRIs. Many of the neurons in the frontal lobe are serotonergic, and if we stimulate the serotonin, we stimulate those inhibitory neurons, which can, I think, help with some of the impulsivity, repetitive behaviors, um, eating disorders. So, usually the the eating disorder is that they eat too much, that there's no there's no impulse control. So if you go to Cheesecake Factory and you have no impulse control, you can put down <laughs> a large amount of food. Um, sexually inappropriate behavior. Antipsychotics can also help. For the delusions, um, You know these fixed beliefs that you can't convince them otherwise, especially if they're terrifying. The nurses are trying to poison me. Um, I'm being held captive. Uh, like a, a cop grass delusion. So my... You, you look like my loved one, but you look like my wife, but you're not my wife. You're an imposter. capgrass delusion. Um, this looks like my home, but it's not my home. Please take me home. So the antipsychotics can help with that. Usually second generation are the preferred. The FTD you can be a little sensitive to antipsychotics, sort of like Lewy body. Um, olanzapine or quetiapine is preferred. Usually avoid first generation if you can and avoid Voidrisperdone. I like Depakote in FTD as well. Some, sometimes the impulsivity, you can get wild mood swings. someone is happy as a clam one minute, the next minute they're yelling, angry, agitated, and then 10 minutes later they're back and they can just swing back and forth. Mood stabilizers can help with that my mentor said if a patient is mean, if they're just a, an SOB, they're just mean to everyone, it's, a, it's different from their previous, Depico can help a little bit with that too. I like it in that it comes in sprinkles. Very often FTD patients, they s- still maintain a lot, many of their cognitive faculties and they can refuse meds. Uh, the sprinkles can easily be administered, um, sometimes without their knowledge. Often, the family has to be okay with that, but usually if the behavioral symptoms are severe enough that uh, the family is is begging you for a solution. I think Depakote works great too in, in patients who they have a prolonged QTC, they're agitated, and you, you sort of don't know what to do, you can do some Depakote. Uh, there's an IV formulation as well for in the hospital. If you look up the studies on it, however, there's somewhat of an unclear benefit. There's n- Agitation and dementia is very hard to study for the reasons I, I, um, we talked about a little earlier. So many of the studies on these drugs are unclear. They're, they're small studies. There's not a lot out there. So this is sort of the art, art of medicine. So sexual inappropriateness, this is a tough one. I think there are a lot of different factors come into play. I mean, you can get this with frontal temporal dementia. You can also get it with Alzheimer's, blue body, different different uh, dementias as someone becomes more severe. Uh, fondling or groping, um, exposing oneself, sexually inappropriate language. It's usually the guys that do this. I don't think I've had a female patient who who was uh, doing any of these behaviors. Uh, you can run into so you can run into some issues with patient's rights here. So say you have a guy who is in his nursing home uh, or who is in his house and he doesn't want to wear his pants. That can make some people feel uncomfortable. Um, especially in the nursing home, the nurses can feel uncomfortable with that. But are you allowed to not wear pants in your own house, in your own apartment? You are. Uh, you. So you can run into some really issues where the staff's uncomfortable but it's a patient's right issue rights issue um i think there's especially older gentlemen who grew up in the 20s and 30s are you uh allowed to 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 uh do a pickup line to a to a woman who's um you run into i mean you're you're allowed to it's not illegal it's inappropriate um but is that something that you medicate if that's been their pattern for their whole life? Um, they've always been, you know, someone who's a little inappropriate with women. Uh, how, what, what, is the, what are the odds of, of fixing that with medication late in someone's life if that's been a, been a pattern? So I think getting a history here of what the inappropriate behavior is, does it cross boundaries that are really making other people feel uncomfortable? And also giving them a chance to bringing it to the person saying you're being inappropriate you need to stop often these cases get get brought to me and there's been no intervention on the part of the the staff to say this is inappropriate please stop you gotta give someone a chance to to tell them no and to stop that being said there are patients who just are wildly inappropriate and you know you can't you can't run around outside with with no clothes on you can't grope people Um, and so when boundaries are crossed, I think you do have to take it seriously. SSRIs are the first, first line. Uh, they can, I think, curb libido, and they can also help with some of that disinhibition. Uh, hormonal agents, too, I think we need to be careful with those. It could be considered a chemical castration in some, some circles. Really, if you're going to go with giving a, a man estrogen, giving him a, a depot shot. Um, doing a testosterone blocking agent for the purposes of treating uh, sexual inappropriateness, I think you have to document, you have to include family um, in on the decision. So, front temporal dementia, Aerosept and Amenda not recommended. Apathy, we run into this frequently. So, the person with dementia who stares out the window won't engage, won't interact, doesn't participate in activities, can be difficult to tell the difference between a depression and apathy. Stimulants can help. Be careful. Be careful what you are stimulating, because the stimulants can cause agitation in themselves. It can get them up, get them moving, and give them just enough energy to uh, fall down, to um, punch nurses, to do, do some of the behaviors that we're trying to avoid. Um, yeah, the issue with stimulants, so like a Ritalin, uh, Adderall would be uh, appetite. So weight loss um, could be an issue too. Insomnia, usually you dose it in the morning. So blue body. I think the takeaway here: you have someone who's having hallucinations. That's part of the disease process. Often they recognize that the hallucinations are not real, but they still can be distressing. They also have Parkinson symptoms. So usually they're on cinemet, some dopamine stimulant, and we get into this situation, do you give them an antipsychotic to block dopamine, or do you just go down on the cinemet? If you're going to use something, Seroquel is probably preferred, has the least dopamine blocking, will make their Parkinson's symptoms, um, affect the Parkinson's symptoms the, less, the least. So we went through evaluation of agitation, pharmacologic, non-pharmacologic approaches, and treating agitation in the context of different subtypes. Does anyone have any cases they want to discuss or any questions about any of the material?
2: Yeah. So we had a patient whose official diagnosis was Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. Uh, He never had to be, like, never had to use Haldol in the past. Uh, came in for respite. His wife never wanted him in, but she was really exhausted and finally after a lot of persuasion, brought him in. And overnight he started, he wants to keep walking around the halls all the time, all the time, all the time. Finally, they were all worried that he's going to fall down. So no matter how much we try to redirect him, he just kept doing the same, so he was given some small doses of Haldol and he was discharged on Haldol. I think this was two days and he came back with um, um, uh, shib- I'm sorry, um, fevers. He was shivering, we thought it was NMS. We, of course, stopped all the antipsychotics. He, uh, we controlled the symptoms within a day and he passed in the next 48 hours. Mm so we don't know his diagnosis was alzheimer's we looked in his chart we never found any uh, ct or anything to correspond we don't know if it was Levi body and uh, if the
1: antipsychotics did it so how do you it's hard to say yeah i and those so it sounds like he was a danger to himself walking around at night we were concerned he's going to fall and break bone um so these cases can be difficult. It's tough to know the right answer sometimes. I I would say often agitation is the first sign of something going on. So he could have had a pneumonia, a urinary tract infection, something else that was presented as agitation. Um, in someone who has severe dementia, even just a tiny infection can throw them into that state where they're not eating, not drinking, just so... Delirious that they can't, can't bounce back from it. The, was he rigid when he came back? Yes, there was he some was. rigidity.
2: But the, here's the thing: uh, it was not my patient. I saw him in the second phase, so everything else was in retrospection. Mm-hmm. So what I read in the notes was, if he was in his room, he was fine. Otherwise, it's like he just wanted to keep walking around. There was no like. Uh, he mm-hmm. was not saying I won't take it. my medication not agitated otherwise just wants to keep walking around all the time and they didn't think it was restless legs or anything like that.
1: Yeah, that's that, that's a tough case. The In moderate to severe dementia I've seen just that change of scenery of being in a familiar place versus being in the hospice can can cause Agitation to the point where they do need medicine, and then they, they go downhill from there. Um, sometimes neurologic insults can cause those kinds of things too, a stroke. Um, they are paroxysmal AFib, and they have an embolic event, or they have an ischemic stroke. So there's plenty of things that cause that. The, how high were his doses of on? Were they, were they really high, or were they tiny? I
2: suppose I remember small doses, yeah.
1: So that in a short time, you wouldn't expect to see that that big of a difference. Although it's not it's not impossible. But again, you know, if someone's a danger to themselves or others, does the does that danger exceed the the small risk of doing an antipsychotic? It sounds like in that case it did. Um, there's also the liability issue too. I mean, we um, someone with dementia wandering around an inpatient unit where there's different patients and they could get lost I mean you can wander out the front door so there's a lot, lot to consider in that case certainly doesn't doesn't feel very good when you feel like there's a cause and effect when you start a medicine and the patient doesn't do well and, and, and dies but
2: and he, was, he was fine in the institution he went home and deteriorated and came back mm. still recommend using Haldol. You would have used Haldol as the first choice.
1: Was it nighttime wandering?
2: Um, any time. It started with evening and then it was any time.
1: Oh, so it was kind of like sundowning maybe?
2: Yeah, but then after the first day it was any time. He wanted to do at least 5-6 rounds, sit down for some time, another 5-6 mm-hmm. rounds.
1: Halal, I think, is a fine choice, especially in a hospice patient. Um, it's the most cost effective. For nighttime, sometimes I'll do Zyprexa or Seroquel because it can be a little more sedating, can help relax and kind of reset their sleep cycle if they're up, up all night, up all day. Put one food, of those. Food, food, food. Seroquel? Yeah, Seroquel or a Zyprexa. Yeah. Those are nice too because if it is so. The chart said Alzheimer's dementia. It's hard to know. Um, I've definitely seen cases where you'd get a history and so that sounds more like Lewy body. Um, and cerclol are probably a little safer in in the Lewy body versus Alzheimer's too. So. Any other uh, questions or any other input? Well, thanks for listening, guys.
0: Thanks again for tuning in. I hope you'll rate and review this podcast and share it with your colleagues and your friends. So you don't miss any of our new content. Make sure you are subscribing to PCIC podcasts. PCIC is sponsored by PALMED, where our aim is to advance palliative care globally and ensure all clinicians have the latest knowledge and skill. To access more PCIC content, please visit palmed.us to review our extensive open access PCIC curriculum.